Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to kick off the 13th podcast on this playlist that I'm looking to launch called Elevated Thoughts. So, you know, before diving into the book and the story for today, I just want to level set on what I'm doing here. So as I endeavor upon pursuing knowledge and life experience in this next phase of life, um, you know, through traveling, fitness, photography, and, and a few other things, um, one habit that I've really formed is reading. So this podcast essentially goes through um, some of the books I've been reading as of late and taking those lessons learned and applying them to experiences in my life. So, um, you know, for today's story, I guess we'll go ahead and j- dive straight into it. Um, I think we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about fashion um, for a little bit. So, you know, I wouldn't consider myself like a a, a very fashionable guy or anything like that. And I always seem to be late to the fashion trends. And you know, one example of that is um with uh with fitted fitted pants. So you know, these days everything is fitted, right? You're wearing uh you know fitted jackets, uh, fitted suits, fitted pants specifically. Um, and so. Um, I was late to that trend, right? I was still wearing baggy pants up until, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, now I switched over to more fitted, um, like khaki type pants um, from like H&M and whatnot. So, um, you know, when I was younger, when I was younger in high school um, and in middle school I, and even in elementary school, I was a, a big fan of jean shorts. Okay. So, um, and obviously, you know, like those went out of style. I don't know if they're like making a resurgence or whatnot, but those are are out of style or they have been for a long time. And I'm not talking about like fitted um, jeans or like, you know, those capri type jeans that guys wear. Um, I'm talking about like baggy, like blue denim shorts in the traditional sense, right? So um, I think like anytime I've learned that I need to change my style, it's been through a, um, a, a hard lesson. Okay. So um, there was one time uh, in college, and I was a freshman in college, so this was, uh, I want to say like 2010, 2011, okay? And jean shorts were definitely out of style by then. So, you know, me me and the friends, me and the guys, we're generally very roasty when we see each other, so we're always going to roast each other. So um, this kind of lays the land for the story here. But I actually wasn't with my core gra- co- core group of guy friends um, when this all happened. So I'm at a party, essentially, okay? So I'm at a party, um, and, you know, we're all we're all freshmen. We're all, like, kind of um, nervous about parties, right? There's some drinking there. Um, but, like, you know, I was underage, so I wasn't really drinking as of yet. Um, and it was just, like, you know, it was an interesting time. I was trying to get to know people. You know, we're breaking the ice. Um, you're kind of wandering into uncharted territory, creating conversations with people you're unfamiliar with. So anyway... We are all in this circle. We're all just standing there, me and a group of dudes. We're all just talking, you know, catching up on sports, whatever you guys talk about, right? And um, so we're, we're all getting comfortable with each other. And we start, like, kind of roasting each other a little bit, right? We're making fun of each other. We're poking at each other and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so a comment is made um, in the air, right? So it's, like, not in our direct uh, circle of conversation, but some someone in the distance goes hey nice jean shorts and everyone starts laughing everyone in the party stopped and collectively started laughing together and me included i started laughing i was like ha 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 lol and then i start looking around and i'm like nobody's wearing jean shorts no guys wearing jean shorts nobody's wearing jean shorts 
And I look down, and I'm the only one wearing jean shorts. And they're all laughing at me, which is fine. Like, I'm totally able to laugh at myself. Um, and it was an interesting experience. But, like I said, generally, when it's time for me to switch up my fashion, an experience like that will occur. And I'll say, okay, well, I guess I need to revamp my whole wardrobe. So after that day, I, I stopped wearing jean shorts. Not I could still rock them. Like, I, I still have them. But um, it's just when you actually look at yourself, you look kind of wonky, right? Like everything looks a lot bigger on you um, back in the day. And now everything's a little bit more fitted. So, you know, I actually like, you know, modern day style, if, you know, if, if that's what you can call it. Um, but I did get roasted for wearing jean shorts um, about a decade ago. But I, I take those as learned experiences and I, um, I improve going forward, I guess. Um, so that's today's story. Um, and then, so we can redirect um, back, to, uh, back to the book. So um, the book we're talking about here is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And we're going through part two on this podcast um, today. So, um, you know, the book here is about um, Viktor Frankl's experience within a concentration camp during the Holocaust. So it goes through human psychology and how it relates to traumatic experiences. And, you know, what I, what I really love about this book is that, you know, it shows no matter the scenario or the challenges that one faces in life, um, we, we as humans can really be resilient and rise above it. So, you know, at the end of the last podcast, um, I talked about how Viktor Frankl is, he's really talking about his wife a lot um, and how her love really pulled him through his time um, at the concentration camp. So, you know, he, he mentions this, which is new for today, um, is that his wife was probably a few hundred yards away um, in the woman's part of camp, right? So that to me is really mind-boggling. Like, um, me just imagining um, me and my fiancé getting separated, but let alone her being, like, just right over there, but me not knowing if she's alive, if she's well, um, would, would drive me insane. But the idea of being reunited at some point in the future um, is enough for Viktor Frankl to stay alive during this uh, this trying time in the Holocaust. Um, so the it just it just really attests to the fact that um, you know every single moment in a concentration camp was um, non-definitive. There was no clear outcome, and um, in today's world, we really need to know what's going to happen before we embark on something. And oftentimes, if we don't, um, it can cause this anxiety. But imagine the stress that Viktor Frankl was going through, where every day he could have died, every hour he could have died, not knowing when um, the end to this concentration camp was going to happen, the trauma that must have uh, inflicted on himself or must have caused uh, what is next level. But anyway, so we'll go on. So, you know, Viktor Frankl goes forward and says, you know, the prisoners of the concentration camp would still come together and attempt to enjoy things like storytelling um, or music, right? They would uh, they would assemble a couple of huts, you know, kind of conjoin them together, um, put some benches together, and then they would enjoy each other's company, you know, for brief moments at a time, right? This didn't happen regularly, but they would enjoy each other's company um, for the little time that they had together. So... He also talks about um, how humor was often used as a defense mechanism in the concentration camp. So he'll say that humor really allows a person to rise above a situation, even if it's just for a few moments. 
So, you know, Viktor Frankl would joke with the people around him about minor things and try to really shed some light or some humor on the situation they were in. Um, he would tell funny stories about, you know, experiences before the camp um, and what they were going to do after the camp as well. And, you know, in a way that, that kept them going, right? Something to look forward to. But, you know, one one thing I'll say is, um, you know, I, I operate the same way. And, you know, my, my fiance and some of my friends will often say, hey, you know, not everything's a joke. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't like laugh about everything. And, you know, that's right. Like there's probably many instances where I'm laughing where I shouldn't be. But um, I refuse to be super serious throughout life. And I think life should be taken very lightheartedly. Um, but anyway, I'll use, a, I'll use a, a story here. Okay, I'll use a personal story. So um, a couple of years ago, a, one of my good friend's uh, father-in-laws passed away, unfortunately, right? And um, so we were all at the funeral to show support. And so me and my fiance show up. And, you know, I've, I've gone through funerals um, um, my whole life. I've, I feel like I've been to an exuberant amount of funerals. And Indian funerals, the ones I primarily have gone to, um, are different in nature um, than an American funeral or your standard funeral or a wake right if we call um so anyway so um what's interesting about about in an indian funeral is there is a lot of interaction with the body which i think is uh very traumatizing for all parties involved right so let me paint you a picture right so there's an open casket in this um this funeral home that we're in and it has like a very cathedral like feel to it um very epic so um, we're, there's there's rows of people because you know uh, my buddy's father-in-law was a very um, respected man in the community so there's a lot of people there and so his family's obviously in the front row um, right next to the body and it's open casket and they they're all putting flowers right everyone comes by and puts flowers um, in the casket and um, they're doing prayers uh, over the over the body and so so what's happening is every time one of the family members is going up to the body they're seeing the dead body and the, the body looks real dead, right? It, it, that sounds, that's morbid, but the body looks so dead. Um, anytime someone goes up to the body, they go into this hysterical fit. Like, oh my God, like beating their chest, right? Like it's very dramatic. And then they, they have this like outburst and they sit down, they calm down for 20, 30 minutes, get back up, go to the body. Oh my God. Like, you know, it's like another fit, right? So every 20, 30 minutes, there's a huge fit going on and i don't want to sound insensitive but like i just like looked over at my fiance and i couldn't help but laugh a little bit because i was like you know what what is going on here like what why would why would someone do this to themselves and i that, you know I'm, I'm being very controversial about this but you know to me the point of that was i was like this is this is crazy like um like everyone's going crazy everyone's throwing their hands up in the air you know it's like a, a kanye west like a sermon or something like that and i just was like I, I just thought it was funny right um so anyway kind of morbid but like every we should be able to laugh in these moments right like um death is a natural part of life um and being able to ingest things and you know just calmly uh rationalize them calmly have a reaction to things or in a light-hearted way to me is really the only way to go about life i don't like being sad or distraught for too long um but anyway right going to show how shedding some humor on a situation um now can really help you through a lot of things um so anyway moving on so Victor Frankl talks about um, finding the silver lining, quote unquote. He doesn't say that in the book, but that's the way I put it, right? Find the silver lining in any situation. So he talks about the train that initially took them to Auschwitz, okay? So painting the picture, so in this train car, um, there wasn't even enough, enough room 
for everyone to squat at once. So let's say that the town car could hold 60 people. There was probably like 200 people um, stuffed into this train car, okay? So some people stood the entire way, stood for days, right? Not sleeping, three nights. Um, other people took turns squatting on this um, bale of hay that was in the corner of the car. Um, and it was full of piss and shit, right? People would use it as their bathroom because they were on this car for three three days and three nights. So the the real um, how do I put, the real fear set in because they thought they were going to this other concentration camp that was that was huge and they would for sure die there. And the the signal that they were going to this camp was if they crossed this one bridge, right, on the train. So they realized that they they didn't cross that bridge, right? They they kind of went a different direction from that bridge, and they were so happy for a second, right? They're like they were all screaming and shouting with joy, um, because they weren't going to that concentration camp. And so even when they got to Auschwitz, they found out that there was no oven, there was no crematorium or gas chamber, right? Because it was a camp with fewer prisoners, and this even made them happy as well, right? It was a sign that they might come out of this, right? They might survive this. Um, so even in a time where there's ne negativity all around, there's always the ability to find silver lining in any situation. So we, we go off that note, okay? So the, the Nazi camp survivors or the prisoners would, would thoroughly enjoy all of the little mercies they would receive, right? They were excited to have time to congregate before bed as opposed to just getting in their beds and having the cabo shut the lights off, right? And there can't be any noise after that. I mean, this is this is not a, a relevant example, but think about the times that we were kids, right? Um, and we were either um, joking around with our siblings late into the night, um, and my parents specifically would make us shut off the shut off everything, right? Shut everything down by 10 o'clock. We're in bed, um, and if they hear us talking or jibber jabbering, they're gonna come in and say, "Hey, no, be quiet. It's time to go to sleep," right? But those times where it was Friday or Saturday and we didn't have to go to sleep at 10, we were super excited, right? It was like, oh my God, we have this reward. We have all this time. Let's scheme. Let's have fun, right? All those moments when you were when you were kids, just staying up late was was fun in itself, right? But um, going back to the concentration camp, they would be excited at those little mercies they would receive. Um, so there's go, there's going into another activity right being resilient even in times um, of harshness or trauma he he mentions a story here where you know there's a there's a there's a person assigned to who had a ladle and he would fill up soup during mealtime right so the prisoners would come by with their bowls and he would fill up their soup and so he said in the of all the people who who possessed or at one point had that job there was only one person who would equally fill everyone's bowl, okay? So there was a guy who would, to his friends, he would take the ladle all the way to the bottom of the, the, the soup bowl or the, the, the tub or the pot, and he would grab all the hearty ingredients and put it in his friend's bowl. But if someone came by that he didn't like, he would just graze some water off the top, um, which is more broth, um, and just put it in the bowl, right? But the, the thing to note here, and the, the, I think it's a very powerful quote, no man should judge unless he asks himself in absolute honesty whether in a similar situation he might not have done the same. Okay? So before we judge, before we jump to a conclusion, put yourself in that situation and imagine yourself there. 
And would you have done the same thing, or would you have acted differently? Um, it, that's a that's a very very uh, important exercise for us to do is to always put ourselves in someone else's shoes and see how they would react. And you know, one example I'll use of this is um so. Uh, you know, throughout this quarantine, I've been watching this uh, this this murder series on Netflix called I Am a Killer. Okay, so um, it really goes through uh, inmates on death row and their stories as to how they got there. So it uh, goes through their side of the story and then the state side of the story. So they do a, a good job of um, kind of making you feel conflicted, right? Um, there's certain stories where you know the like let's let's use an example. So there's this one lady who. Um, she, she, she wasn't well off. She was poor. Um, and so she, she always resorted to interesting ways to make ends meet in one particular scenario, right? She, she had, she had a gun and she had went back to a hotel room with a guy. Um, and he had, he had granted her a favor like earlier on. And so, um, he, she had agreed to like go out to dinner with him. So he picked her up, but he said, Hey, you know what? I need to go back to my place to take a shower, um, before we can go out to eat. So he, he comes out of the shower like almost naked this guy's like six five six six um and he's approaching this girl saying hey you're gonna have to you know have intercourse with me or whatever um if you want to leave here okay so now putting yourself in that person's shoes right um you say okay i'm a female there's a there's a guy who's clearly gonna overpower me here and he's gonna potentially rape me um and i have a gun in my purse uh i you know i could use this and kill this guy in self-defense or I could let this happen, maybe try to escape, maybe whatever. Maybe I'll shoot him in the leg or something like that, okay? So this guy, this girl um, ended up shooting the guy fatally, right? He died from his wounds. Um, and then they, they go into the, the state side where, you know, they try to um, show or prove that she had some premeditated efforts um, to kill this guy. And so um, it's a, you know, we the, the gut instinct is, is to say, oh, yeah, you know, like she chose this life of criminality and blah, 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 right? But... You never know what you would do in that similar situation, right? I was fortunate enough to be brought up, you know, in the first world. I never experienced poverty. So um, none of my decisions came from, like, a poverty-type mindset. So, you know, for me to just blatantly or non-factually judge someone is um, unwarranted. So, um, like I said, just putting yourself in someone else's shoes um, and seeing how you would react is a uh, is a very solid exercise. Um so going forward and talking about being resilient, coming back to the book. So Victor Frankl himself um, would volunteer uh, in the sick ward to take care of ill patients. Um, and, you know, his thought process was, if I'm going to be here, I might as well um, help others and do something positive. Even in a concentration camp, this guy is attempting to save lives, right? And that's something very noteworthy, very commendable. But he goes, he goes forward and says, you know, it's a second part of decision making, okay? So it wasn't just emotional or maybe not even emotional at all, okay? And we should always try to remove emotions from our decision making. So he, he says that if he was part of a working party, like a part of a group that would go out, you know, dig, um, dig holes um, and repair things and, you know, be out in the field, right? Be part of a working party. He would probably die, okay? So... Um, he said, what use would I be if I, you know, became a vegetable or, you know, caught pneumonia and died, right? So he made a calculated decision saying, hey, look, um, in order for me to stay alive, which might seem contrary, I'm going to have to go be with the sick patients, okay? Um, so that's, that's a very, very solid example in calculated decision making, even in traumatic times. But, you know, going forward to the prisoner himself, um, 
Viktor Frankl would say, you know, they lived in a community, all these prisoners, they lived in a community where everything was constantly monitored um, and they were almost herded like sheep, okay? And they would crave alone time because they would never they would never have it. Um, they would, um, and I, you know, they they would find these prisoners often alone, right? Not often, but let's say they found a prisoner alone. They would label that prisoner as someone who's conspicuous, maybe scheming, maybe plotting, right? So you wouldn't want to be someone who stood out. You would always just want to be part of the herd. Um, but they would live for these little, little moments um, when they got alone time. And, you know, like I said, all these these examples are very extreme. But I kind of relate that to living at home. You know, my parents are very in my business a lot. Um, they were just in my grill all the time, barging into my room, wanting us to be around them all the time, and then kind of becoming angry when we would go out. So there was never like a, uh, a very positive time. If you were in our room, it was negative because we were in our rooms. If you were with them, um, be before long, we would start fighting. And if we were out with our friends, we were not, you know, being loyal to the family, whatever. But a lot of times, right, like going to school, going to work, coming home, being with my family. I'm around people all day long. I just want to go in my room and relax, right? Um, and like I slowly start realizing is like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a guy who likes to be around people all the time, right? I go out, I get my social interactions, and I come home, um, and I like, I like being alone, right? And it, it gives me the, the time I need to reflect and unwind and recharge. But you know, in my house, there's like no locked doors ever. It was, it, it was tough. Um, but when, when you, when you're around people too much as well, it's hard to get a gauge of who you really are. When, when you're around, let's say, your parents all the time, you start to identify with their type of thinking. Or if you're around a certain group of friends, you start to identify with their type of thinking as well. And it, it, it all might be good, right? But it, it might not be you, right? And I realized that after I kind of pulled off um, from my parents' thought processes that I'm very different than them. And I have, I have a different mentality than them. And it's okay. Um, it's okay to have different perspectives as long as we accept each other um, and we promote positivity amongst each other. So coming back to alone time, right? So we were talking about how Viktor Frankl um, volunteered in the sick ward. So when people died, there was just a pile of dead bodies. They would throw them um, in outside the, the sick ward, and then they would later burn them. Um, so Viktor Frankl would often go stand by a group of dead bodies behind the shelter, right, where the sick people were. And he would just look out on the landscape um, and reminisce with this pile of dead bodies next to him. So he needed alone time so badly that he was willing to stand next to this disgusting, smelly group of corpses um, just to get that time. So just think about the desperation of a, of a Nazi camp uh, prisoner there. And even a sick story, right? This is not super related. But he was looking at that pile of dead bodies once, and he noticed that there was like a large chunk of human flesh missing off of one of the dead bodies. And then he later found that exact... Um, piece of flesh boiling in a pot and you know signifying that cannibalism had broken out in the camp which is very 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 detrimental very sick um and it just kind of goes to show the extents that people had to go to to survive in camp so talking about camp life going further there was this level he's you know he says there's a general level of irritability and tension in the camp okay so and this was partly attributed to uh, the absence of nicotine or caffeine uh, in the camp. There was, there was no sign of that. 
So we talk about today, right? Present day. Everyone has some sort of vice, uh, or not everyone. Most people have some sort of vice. You know, some people drink, smoke, they eat excessively, they shop. You know, things like that. Um, and you know, many people rely on coffee to really get their their morning kick started um, or get them to baseline in the morning. And you know, myself included. But um, so I drink coffee every morning, okay? And I drink it mostly for the bowel movement, I guess, because it gets me going, gets me cleaned out. But um, at the same time, there is something nice about having a warm cup of coffee and, you know, just answering emails in the morning. Um, there's something relaxing about having that time to yourself uh, to get the day going. But, you know, even even talking about, you know, smoking weed and stuff like that, you know, um, it, there's, there's just nothing, there's just nothing available to them there, right? Like there's, you know, like I said, I smoke weed, you know, at a frequent cadence. Um, and like, I, I don't know, I wouldn't call it a vice or anything like that, but it's something I do, you know, relatively often. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll throw that in that category as well. Um, you see people even today at work, so many people at my office, um, take smoke breaks throughout the day, right? They need that. They can't even go a couple hours without that, you know, that, that monkey just kind of on their back. But, you know, there in the concentration camp, there wasn't even these baseline necessities, right? People wouldn't smoke their cigarettes because they used it as currency. Um, and you'd be dumb for smoking your cigarettes. Um, but, you know, going back to being resilient, um, Victor Franco talks about how there were very few prisoners like this, but they did exist. And these prisoners would uh, give up their piece of bread for someone who was sick, right? They only got one piece of bread every four days. So that means they probably weren't, eat, weren't eating for a week. Um, there, there were prisoners who would walk through huts to check on people. Um, really solid example here of how humans can overcome this apathy and the, their irritability, um, even though everything was taken from them, right? They chose to have a positive attitude. And, you know, I talked about this before, but, you know, a lot of people didn't die because of the circumstances in the camp. And, I mean, they did as well, but the final outcome of the prisoner seemed from Victor Frankl's perspective to be their decision, right? Someone who finally said, you know what? I can't take it anymore. I give up, you know, I'm, I'm ready to die. So someone take me, right? So either they gave up or they powered through it. So this, this really leads into the topic of suffering. So um, the, the first quote that Victor Frankl mentions in this section is um, a quote by another, another psychologist um, that says, the only thing that I dread is to not be worthy of my sufferings. So that goes back to our view on life. Um, I generally have a comfortable life, right? I um I, I have a decent job. I um I have a good family life. I have a you know I'm engaged to my best friend. I have a very solid group of friends. Um, awesome siblings. Um, I don't experience a lot of you know poverty or or, or too many issues throughout my day to day. Um, so but the, the, the other side of that is how am I going to react when something you know necessarily doesn't go my way, right? Um, so I'll use another story. So, you know, one of my friends, like I was saying, one of my friend's father-in-laws passed away over the past couple of years. And um, look, what I'll say is, you know, my, my, my boy definitely stepped up for the challenge, right? He was 100% um, the, the best man I've ever seen him be, right? He could have gotten down and he could have gotten down himself. He could have turned to a lot of things, right? Been like, you know, I'm recently married. Why do I have to deal with this for, for 
two or three years, you know, my father-in-law is, you know, dealing with like a terminal illness and, you know, my fiance sad. There's a lot of depression going around. Um, you know, he only has X amount of time to live or he, what he did do was this, right? He said, this is my time to step up. This is my time to be the rock. Um, this is my time to not show weakness, to be someone that everyone cannot be right now, to be strong. And I kid you not, the speech that he gave at his father-in-law's funeral almost had me in tears because this this guy put it together, right? In in a trying time, he maintained his cool and he gave the best speech I've probably ever heard him give um, throughout our friendship. And I was so proud of him for that. And, you know, it was tough because at the same time, I wasn't talking to him for like four or five months at a time. And But when we would touch base, I would just know that, hey, you know, my brother's grinding. He's getting it. He's doing what he's got to do for his family. Uh, and I support him in that, you know? And even though it was tough for me not to see, like, you know, one of my best friends throughout all this time, I supported him. I was always there. I, and, like, I just wanted him to always know that, you know, it's times like these that define us as human beings or define us as uh, who we are, right? Are we going to push through it or are we going to cave? So interesting story there, right? Um, so not, not really trying to say why is this happening to me, right? Just saying this is going to make me better. I'm worthy of my struggle. I'm worthy of my suffering, right? Suffering is a very essential part of life, I think. Um, you really can't have the good without the bad, the yin or the yang. Um, and I really think everyone needs some kind of monumental struggle to overcome in their life um, because it does kind of have a, a way of peeling back a lot of layers of bullshit and then you just realize what's important in life. Um, and I think, you know, having that struggle really, really helps us step up for the challenge. It shows us what we can do, right? Even talking about the day-to-day, -day, like um, my fiance really wants to run a half marathon or, you know, I ran my first uh uh, a half marathon she wants to run a marathon I run, ran my first half marathon three or four years ago and I was like man you know what I'm not really a big runner but if I did this I can certainly do more I can certainly do this right if I you know developed a plan um, mile by mile week by week to attain this why can I do that for another part of my life as well so you know not not a dark time for me by any means but um, just a way of applying that resilient methodology to other parts of life as well um, so anyway, coming back to the book here, um, he says one of the biggest struggles for a prisoner was not knowing the end to their imprisonment, okay? So not knowing how long the war would go on, um, not knowing how long it would be for, before they got freed. So the deeper effect of this is really that some people didn't have a goal to work towards because they were like, you know what, I'm just going to hustle out this time in the concentration camp, and then I'll figure out my goal. I'll get back on it when I get out, right? But um, when you don't have a goal, you tend to decline, right? So he was saying that a lot of men would let themselves start declining um, and they would start reflecting on life before the concentration camp. And that's how they would stay alive, right? They would just reflect on that past time. But what we talked about this with the Four Agreements, Power of Now, The Alchemist, right? Living in the past really poses some real risks because you rob the present of any opportunities to elevate. So... A lot of the Nazi camp prisoners didn't realize that there was such a powerful opportunity to gain spiritual revival, right? Um, in, this, in, in such a trying time, um, they could be resilient more than they ever were even outside of the, the camp, okay? Um, 
And then uh, let's talk about, you know, even our jobs right now. A lot of times we say, okay, you know, I'm going to get this job for this amount of time and then move here. I'm going to do this for X amount of time, move here. We we find ourselves waiting for that next thing in life constantly. Okay, when I get there, I'll be happy. When I get there, I'll be happy. But then you rob the moment of any of those lessons that you could be learning right then, right? And you never get that time back. Um, but, you know, one contradiction, I'll say, um, in, in this book versus the other books I've been reading is that um, Victor Frankl says that you should have a definitive future goal and you should live through that future goal and that can and that can pull you through the present okay and for the Nazi for a Nazi camp that applies right you you would have to almost think about life afterwards so you could get through the moment so he so Victor Frankl starts talking about things you know um, he starts worrying about getting on getting more food in the in the camp getting more clothes in the camp um, getting on good terms with the capo. And he, he would get frustrated by this. He's like, none of this is important for me to think about. Like, this is idiotic, okay? So what he what he did was he created a future image where he was giving a lecture in a, in a university hall after the camp, and he was talking about his life in the concentration camp. So through that, he was really able to pull himself through the, his experience in the concentration camp, right? Through having that image, Okay, and you know, one question I'd love to ask you guys as we wrap up this podcast is, do you ever do that? So I do that all the time. I do it all the time in a lot of different areas, right? So you know, I sometimes picture myself podcasting with Joe Rogan, right? Like maybe one day I could podcast with Joe Rogan and just have a, a nice two, three hour conversation with him, or you know, talk to the weekend um, about how he developed his music or um, or his, or his history with women and how he got to where he is today. Um, and all those sad lyrics and what, what really uh, motivated him to write music like that. Or, you know, ASAP Rocky, Travis Scott, where do these guys get their musical inspiration from? And even, you know, talking with my friends, I'd love to sit down and have conversations, deep conversations at a regular cadence with my best friends, right? Um, that shows that we're always elevating. We're always increasing our knowledge base in life. Um, and that really keeps me doing what I'm doing right now um, is maybe one day I can do that or not, right? Either way, I'll be good. Um, I picture me and the squad going on trips, right? Reflecting on trips for years to come, taking pictures, um, doing things like that, really talking about all the great things that we did in life and sharing, um, in all of those together. So anyway, I'll leave you with that thought. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. Feel free to leave me, um, any feedback, always welcome. Um, and remember only positivity. Thanks guys.